Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thank you all for joining us for the show today. In the uh, headlines to the show, I referred to what has now become a ubiquitous quotation from the great Democratic political consultant uh, James Carville back in 1992. We were dealing with difficult economic times back then. Uh, Carville was working for Bill Clinton, and uh, uh, Carville was the one who coined the phrase, it's the economy, stupid, uh, and built the Clinton campaign around uh, his efforts to uh, uh, improve uh, a difficult time for the country economically. And, of course, that becomes important today because we are once again in a fragile economic environment in this country. But but I have to, before I introduce the panel, at, uh, which we're all going to talk about the economy and what's creating the conditions we're dealing with, um, I have to add a personal note that when I think of Carvel's quote, I think of it in another context, too, and about me. When it comes to the economy, I am absolutely stupid. <laughs> it, it baffles me. My eyes glaze over when I try to read reports on uh, things like the gross domestic product, which is in the news today. Um, I, I try to understand the confusing signals, and I'm not very good at it. So today we have uh, two experts who are going to help us um, unpack all of this. Um, and they are Michael Cannell, who is a senior economics reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Michael, we're really glad to have you here today. In a little while, we'll talk about the fact that you have a byline on the front page of the paper today about job growth in uh, in Metro Atlanta, at least. Yes? Indeed. Indeed. Um, it's great to be with you, Bill. I've, I'm at least a, a layer or two uh, of stupid above you, but uh, I'm, I, I don't know if expert <laughs> is really the right word to use for it. Well, thank you for being here. We're also joined by Professor Caroline Folin, who's a professor of economics at Emory University. Thank you very much. Uh, Caroline, we we are kind of informal on the show today, so if you don't mind, we're going to call you by your first name and not uh, call you professor throughout the show, okay? That's fine with me. Thanks for being here. And we're joined by uh, two two wonderful journalists, um, Jim Galloway, former political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is uh, with us as he is on Fridays for the show. Uh, Jim, I hope you're ready for this conversation. And by the way, later we're going to talk about the latest political headlines. But Jim, I'm really looking forward to hearing uh, what uh, our, our guests have to say about the economy. Yeah, uh, this is one of those, those uh, occasions where I, I need to be told what to think. <laughs> yeah, okay. Stephen Fowler, who is GPB's political uh, reporter and also uh, uh, the host of Battleground Ballot Box, a terrific podcast uh, that you can get on any podcast platform you happen to use. Stephen, I suspect that you probably have a little more uh, interest and understanding of the economy because you're an Emory graduate. So, you know, you've got the education for it. <laughs> well, I, I, I did take I did take a, a few economics classes in my time there. I won't tell you what the grades were, but they rhyme with C. So we'll see how this goes. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's get right to it. And, and what I'm sort of hoping we can do, Michael, and we'll start with you and then Stephen and Jim, please uh, jump in. Um, it, it, we sort of need some basics, I think, uh, uh, to help our listeners understand what's going on with the economy. Um, so let me start by talking about the story that you wrote that's on the front page of the paper today. It seems like good economic news. Your lead is Metro Atlanta hit a record low unemployment rate last month as the region's job machine churned forward through the headwinds of inflation and higher interest rates. Talk about that with us. Well, uh, it, it is good news. It's good news uh, for people who are looking for jobs, and it's good news for uh, for people who want to make a little more money because they have uh, a little more bargaining power in the marketplace. 
Uh, and it, what makes it potentially, as you said, fragile is the idea that the context of this is in uh, a campaign that the Federal Reserve has been mounting to slow down the economy. And the Federal Reserve, uh, sooner or later, will get what it wants if it uh, tries hard enough. If it wants a recession, it will get one. But the, 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 the numbers and the, the reality right now is that it's a really good labor market for workers. And, and Caroline, to what extent does a good labor market influence the other factors that we look at, at, at inflation, cost of living, um, the possibility of a recession? Do they, are they inter, do they work together in some way? Well, sure. And, of course, it's uh, variable regionally. So we're talking specifically about, um, you know, the Atlanta area. And so Atlanta's had a very strong economy locally for the past 10, maybe 20 years. I mean, we've been a a thriving, growing metropolis. So um, we've also had higher inflation. And part of that's because things like... um, Housing stocks don't keep up with the new jobs and the employees moving here and wage increases. So you do see a connection between uh, the booming economy and the increases in prices, that is inflation. Yeah, Jim, I know you want to jump in. Let me just say that I think Caroline made an important point. There's much of the state of Georgia uh, is not. Uh, doing uh, particularly well in terms of employment. That's a problem that precedes the inflationary period, the pandemic that we've lived through. That's been an ongoing uh, problem in many parts of rural Georgia particularly. But please jump in, Jim. Uh, yeah, yeah, Caroline, let me ask you. Uh, we have a, it, this is a political show, so let's, let's, let's bring that into it. If you were Brian Kemp, if you're Governor Brian Kemp, you are just astounded uh, by how great uh, Georgia's economy is going right now. Uh, if you are Herschel Walker, uh, you are, you are, uh, it, uh, the economy is a complete disaster. Is, 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 is there, is there a difference between uh, the national economy and the Georgia economy? Uh, you, you mentioned that, uh, that we we're doing a little bit better, but is there a significant difference? Well, so the Atlanta economy is doing really well. The U.S. economy is actually doing pretty well. Um, unemployment is, uh, I think you could say, at a historic low. So from that standpoint, that's fantastic. Um, so the political part of this is that, of course, the president is in charge of gas prices. I'm, I'm saying that ironically, which may not come across over the radio. Um, and so that's always used uh, against the president. Um, and apparently he's also in charge of prices in Europe where inflation is even higher um, than in the United States. So, um, you know, that's, that's kind of a political side of things that um, presidents get blamed for inflation, even though, of course, they have almost no control over inflation. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think the political take is going to be, you know, Herschel Walker wants to unseat um, uh, Raphael, Raphael Warnock, Warnock. And so, yeah. so he's he's going to say the economy is terrible, and um, you know have to have to get rid of the Democrats and and elect Walker. Um, and at the local, you know, the the state level, of course, we have a Republican. So the Republican wants to pitch the positive economy locally, but actually, it's not that much of a difference. Um, the the national economy has been doing quite well, um, and to the extent that Georgia's been doing even better, it's because we've got uh, conditions here that, that long predate Brian Kemp. Michael, you want to take a shot at that? And then, Stephen, please jump in. Well, right. I mean, I think I, I, I'm going to try really hard not to get into the politics of any of this, um, uh, because I think I know what's good for me. But the the, the the truth is it, a lot depends on where you are in the state, where you are um, in the job market, uh, whether you're uh, trying to hire and having trouble finding people and how you feel when you go to the gas pump or the, uh, the grocery store uh, as to what is happening in the economy, whether it's uh, a good thing, a bad thing, whether it is a disaster or whether you should 
uh, take pleasure in, in what's going on. But the, the, the problem is any kind of action is going to have uh, repercussions across the whole economy. So that if you're concerned about paying a little higher price uh, and the Fed throws us into uh, a recession, you may not have a job. So that's uh, not necessarily better than paying a higher price at, at, the, at the gas uh, at, at the grocery store. I mean, it's it's a complicated economy, and there's a lot of pieces to it. And you can you can you can make a narrative that that fits what you want. But uh, right now, it it is I, I, as you said, it's fragile. There's a, this balance right now. The job market is real is real good, not as good as it was a couple months ago. But the job market is good. Inflation is rising. The attempt to stop inflation could ruin that first element, the job market. Right. And so Even- I will I will talk about the politics because I know it's good for me. You have four things that we're kind of looking at with these different campaigns here. You've got the local economy, uh, the, the state level economy, the national economy, Metro Atlanta's economy and everywhere else. And you see a really interesting thing with these four top campaigns for office for governor and Senate of how they're each trying to thread the needle to convince their voters that their economic message is the right thing. Brian Kemp arguably has the most successful economic messaging right now because of Georgia's unemployment rate, because of Georgia being the number one state to do business based on all of these rankings and things and the groundbreakings for all of these different economic developments. But that kind of weakens the message of nationally, it's Democrats' fault the economy is so terrible when you can look outside your front door in Georgia and see that things are pretty great. So Stacey Abrams is trying to take that message and say, Georgia's economic prosperity is uneven, and it's being felt in Atlanta and being felt in parts of rural Georgia that Governor Kemp likes. And we are seeing that. There are certain areas in the state that are benefiting from these investments coming in, while you still have other parts of the state that are seeing businesses close and have overall lower economic profiles. And in the Senate race, Raphael Warnock is talking a lot about the work he's done to ease some of the national economic woes, whereas Herschel Walker is saying, no, it's all the Democrats' fault. But again, you know, that local messaging that Brian Kemp has about how Republican leadership is doing things in Georgia has neutered a lot of those attacks at the federal level that Herschel Walker is trying to level. So it's a very interesting quadrant of politics here. Uh, it is. Uh, Caroline, uh, l- let me go back to this whole notion of that you uh, uh, started to, uh, us on a uh, uh, path of. Stephen just talks about the politics of, of all of this. You point out that, uh, you know, elected leaders don't have a whole lot of control over things like inflation, a recession, whatever. Um, what what are the root causes of the inflationary period we're in right now? Republicans would say, among other things, it's because of the enormous spending on COVID relief funds that the administration, of course, the Trump administration started the ball rolling with that. Then the Biden administration added to it. But is there something to that? Is the dumping of all this money into states around the country, including Georgia, one of the contributing factors of inflation? Is it uh, supply chain problems? Tell us a little bit about it from your point of view. Well, you've just hit the the two key factors, which is uh, demand on one side and supply on the other. And um, I know you're those of you who've taken economics and not enjoyed it are going to have PTSD when I start talking about <laughs> supply and demand. Uh, so, but but that's uh, the 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 key problem is that we've got a couple of different things going on. We do have the what, what economists like to call helicopter money, all the cash that was dumped on the economy. Uh, as you rightly note, that was started in the Trump administration in 2020, uh, and in fact, most of it came then. Um, in fact, I, I think I said at the time uh, on Twitter, that's a lot of money. Uh, that's a lot of helicopter money. Uh, it, was, it was kind of shocking um, and how broad-based the, the money was. Um, so, yes, that was um, going to tend to push up demand. And if you can think back to your supply and demand curves, when you suddenly shift out demand, that's going to raise prices. There's, there, there are more people vying for the fixed amount of goods that can't adjust in the, in the short term. And then you have that um, really compounded by the fact that, 
well, supply couldn't keep up at all, and it was even worse than normal because of all the shutdowns, and particularly in China. And um, I think everyone can remember way back to um, a year ago when we were talking about the stacks of uh, boxes uh, piled up, uh, shipping containers in the ports um, that were unable to move throughout the country. Does everyone remember that? I mean, it seems like many years ago, but it was last year. Um, so those those supply chain issues are um, are easing. So we're seeing some improvement and goods prices. Uh, there's actually a lot of excess uh, supply in some areas of the economy. Uh, it tends to be more in the the goods and not so much in the services. So we see our service prices. You know, think about your airline tickets, hotel rooms, restaurant food. Those kinds of prices are really high and don't seem to be uh, tapering off quite as nicely as the uh, goods prices, uh, where the supply chains have started to ease up. Um, and of course, the the stimulus checks stopped in. When was that? March of 2021. I mean, it's been a year and a half since we've had uh, helicopter money, um, and now we have the Fed increasing um, interest rates, and so we're seeing huge increases in mortgages. So if you think about the cost of buying a home now, um, you know it's maybe two or three times higher than a year or two ago. So interest, the the kind of national average is maybe seven percent, which is just Incredible. We haven't seen those rates in since before the housing crash. So let me, Michael, uh, bring this down to uh, my everyday trips to the grocery store. Uh, the prices certainly are up. People are getting sticker shock. I, I the the, the uh, uh, fish market where I buy salmon, for example, I'm just staggered <laughs> by what I'm paying for a pound of fresh salmon compared to what I did say a year ago. And Natalie Mendenhall sent me some figures: uh, the price of eggs from a year ago in August to this year in August up a dollar fifteen. Chicken prices up almost a dollar. Um, it, it you know bacon uh, up something like uh, almost uh, 50 cents. So it isn't as if, you know, um, we just heard Caroline say that goods prices are starting to come down, but it, but it feels like we're still really feeling the sticker shock at the grocery well, store. Well, they're, they're decelerating. I mean, I think that, that really can't be a demand story unless, unless you're buying and eating a lot more than you were a couple of years ago. I think uh, all of us are basically eating about the same amount. So demand hasn't really changed in food. It's the supply chain and it's the production elsewhere uh, the, and the cost of energy in order to distribute food and move it around the world. That And, of course, the war uh, of the Russian war against Ukraine has had a lot to do with grain prices. Uh, it's... Uh, it's it that part of it is really a supply side story, and the Fed is not going to fix that. I mean, I think it's important to know the Fed is not going to fix that with higher interest rates. I, I, you know, I think of the the Fed has only again they have a couple of tools, but their main tool is interest rates, and it's it's kind of a crude weapon. It's a little like having using tear gas against the squirrels in your attic. You know, you may eventually get the squirrels out of there, but in the meantime, you may do some collateral damage. So that's something to to, uh, to to keep in mind here. I mean, yeah, yeah, the prices. There's no question the prices of, uh, in in the grocery stores are a lot higher than they were. Uh, although, as as I think Caroline said, it, they're decelerating. They're not they're not increasing at the rate they were before. But that's a supply story. Yeah, Carol, Caroline, uh, we've got to, to, to pick up on what Michael is uh, saying about uh, about uh, Russia and Ukraine and and the war over there. Uh, you are saying uh, that the, you're picking up. We're picking up the first hints of re- Republican dissatisfaction uh, with with the war. There, uh, uh, Kevin McCarthy had kind of said that the appetite among uh, his 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 caucus was was limited as far as U.S. Uh, U.S. help over there goes. What is what's what is the impact of the war? On 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 the economy in the U.S. I mean, it's it's you've got uh, um, you've you've got the natural gas issue. You do have the grain issue. How quickly how quickly can that can that be fixed? Can it be fixed? I suppose. Well, so that's exactly right. The um, the prices on those volatile food and energy sectors, and and that's what. Um, 
you know, we, we kind of see fluctuating dramatically up and down. So those prices do come down, um, but they are also um, decelerating, uh, as Michael said. So, so when you think of inflation, you have to think about the prices are the levels and they go up and that's inflation. If the prices just stay up or go up only a little bit, then your inflation rate comes down, but your prices are still higher, right? So your prices now are still higher than they were a year ago, but they may not keep going up, okay? And in some areas, they are actually falling, which is deflation, okay? So you have to get your terms right. Um, now, those volatile energy and food sectors, they're volatile, meaning they go up and they come down. So we saw oil prices come, gasoline prices came, actually did fall. They're still higher than they were a year ago. But, you know, we could see them continue to fall, and a lot of that depends on what happens in the Ukraine war, but it also depends on what happens with OPEC. So you recall that President Biden went to Saudi Arabia and thought he had a deal um, with Saudi Arabia and OPEC about oil production, and then he came back and it turned out he didn't. And so we, we see that in the ebb and flow of uh, oil. So that's, that's a sector where it's really hard to forecast what's going to happen um, with prices. So we don't know uh, about that. And then with food, you see that there is this uh, problem with supply there, and there's, there's really uh, very little solution to that because we can't suddenly start producing. I don't think I'm, I'm not in grain production um, for food, but I don't think we can have a sudden increase in grain production. There is a lot of world trade in that uh, sector. So a lot of that has to do with what happens in the war and what happens in negotiations to get food out of Ukraine, because Ukraine was a, a huge supplier of grain to other parts of the world. And, of course, when that gets stopped up, then there's going to be increased demand for U.S. grain elsewhere. Yeah. So that means there is, a, in a sense, an increase in demand for American grain, even though it's not from Americans. You see? So Stephen, let me give you... Well, I'm sorry. I apologize. No, Carolyn. I was just Finish, saying please. that, you know, you can, while we're not eating anymore, and that's absolutely true, there may be, there is a global economy uh, and trade in grain. And so it might actually, uh, because of that limited supply coming out of uh, those constraints coming out of Ukraine, there might actually be an increase in what we see as American producers' demand. Stephen? At some point, I would like to, I think you should also think about uh, something that Michael um, alluded to, which is the, the suppliers. Part of that has to do with whether they're competitive or not. And so we have to think about these industries where there isn't active competition. And so prices aren't I, going I definitely, to be we, I, You know what, um, Stephen, I want you to jump in here. But yeah, what I'd like to do, um, I had initially uh, said to you, uh, Michael, and you, Caroline, that we'd spend the first uh, half of the show talking about. But if you both can stick with us, I think we need to extend this conversation. It's too interesting. Stephen, get a question or a comment in before we have to take a break. Well, I, I guess one question that I have, and, and maybe it's somewhat rhetorical, but it is something genuine that, you know, we talk about uh, inflationary measures and how I think the helicopter cash, uh, as you explained it, but something that people have asked me and brought up that I haven't really dove into myself is, at the state level, is Georgia cutting its income taxes and doing some of the things at the state level? Could you not argue that some of the Republican state-level economic decisions that have been made are not also inflationary in similar ways to some of the federal government's reactions to the pandemic? Michael? Well, the more money people have to spend, the more demand you're going to have in the economy. Uh, that's, and that is inflationary, yes. Short answer. All right, let's do this. Uh, let's get the first break of the show out of the way. Uh, Caroline and Michael, I want to hold on to you if you can spare the time. And uh, Jim and Stephen uh, will be back with more in just a moment on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
Stephen Fowler and Jim Galloway uh, join me along with Michael Cannell, the senior economics reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and Caroline Foline, professor of economics at Emory University. And we're talking today about uh, where the economy is right now, where it's headed, how it influences the election, and a lot more on the show. And by the way, before the show ends today, we are going to uh, talk about the four ballot initiatives that voters are dealing with. I've got some complaints from some of you that I'd said a couple days ago we do it and we haven't yet. I promise today we will do just that. Uh, but let me ask a first question in this segment. <clears throat> Excuse me. Michael, um, I think Caroline pointed us in a direction right before the break that relates to uh, the comments I got from listeners. When I announced yesterday we were going to do this show today, I got so many emails, texts, uh, tweets from listeners who said we'd better talk about corporate greed because they're convinced that part of the problem we're having with the cost of goods and services is based on corporate greed, not a circumstance of the pandemic or any of the other factors that many people point to. Michael? Well, I, I think I'm going to defer to Professor Foline on some of the details here. But in general, uh, a number of the, the studies show corporate profits rising more quickly than prices have risen over the past couple of years. And there are some places where there are good reasons and good excuses for that that don't simply lead you to the conclusion that they're just squeezing you for all they can. But in other places, whereas... Uh, Caroline pointed out earlier where there's where there's competition or where there isn't excuse me where there isn't competition and and co companies feel they have price flexibility they can move the price wherever they want because the uh, the consumer has to pay it well I think there's been some and in fact some of the corporate executives in their their earnings calls have essentially admitted as much that there are some places where they said well we've got the the pricing power we're going to take it. Absolutely. Caroline? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, but, you know, as an economist and, a, and one who studies um, finance, I'm, you know, hesitant to call it corporate greed in the sense that, of course, businesses exist to do one thing, which is to maximize their profits. And, and so, you know, they're just doing what businesses do. Um, now, the regulators can have some input into that, and we have an antitrust division at the Department of Justice that's uh, supposed to be tasked with um, trying to improve the competitive landscape. And so we have things like a proposed merger of two of the largest supermarket chains that's just been in the news. Um, and so the, the question is, is, is that going to do anything to improve the uh, problem of high food prices if we have uh, two of the largest supermarket chains merging. You look at uh, things like your services, your, your airline services. Um, you know, if you fly out of Atlanta like um, all of us do, you are faced with pretty much a giant, uh, almost monopoly, not quite. Um, it's improved in recent years, but, you know, you, you fly Delta or, you, you know, you can fly Spirit to some places. Um, and, you know, so you, you don't have uh, a lot of bargaining power there. And likewise with things like your cable, your Internet service. You know, I get, if you want fast Internet service in my neighborhood, it's Xfinity. And, you know, I, I called for my annual threatening to quit, threatening to leave, pretend conversation, and I, I couldn't get it down this year. You know, usually I get like, oh, well, we've got this great, we've actually got a great deal this year. That didn't happen this year. So, um, you know, Businesses with pricing power are, are employing that power. Stephen, jump in. And so, I mean, you're, you're seeing this in the campaign messaging, particularly of Democrats running for the U.S. Senate. Uh, John Fetterman in Pennsylvania is railing on Shell for posting billions of dollars in profits and saying that it's their fault that gas prices are high. You know, here in Georgia, Raphael Warnock has been using this line about kind of price gouging and corporations to tout his efforts to try to lower the cost of insulin and try to lower the cost of other health care for seniors and non-seniors by saying that these corporations are experiencing record profits while you're having to pay an arm and a leg, sometimes literally, to get the medication that you need. And it's, you know, yes, people do appreciate 
that, you know, corporations have goals of making money and profits for shareholders and things. But it is interesting to see what industries these campaigns are targeting to attack them for supposed corporate greed, because they are the ones that people can kind of see and feel in more of their everyday life. They can see the cost of insulin is high. They can see the cost of gas is high. You know, you're not necessarily seeing uh, campaigns attacking uh, big fast food for the price of nuggets going up at McDonald's or something, because it's not as something easy for people to believe and be mad at as, you know, medical corporations and gas companies. Jim? Uh, yeah, just uh, uh, Michael and, and, and Dr. Foline. Uh, where are the bubbles in this economy? Where where are the things that uh, that that might go wrong in the in in this in this in the next year or so? I mean, is it in housing? Is it in is it in is it in pharmaceuticals? Where where is the overinvestment happening? Well, I mean, if, Michael, if you say a bubble. I mean, I think you, you're you're asking two different questions. One is about um, where where there are places where there's excess. Um, excess pricing where the prices are going up faster than justified by circumstances. Um, but the other question is, what can go wrong? That's a different question. <laughs> Caroline? Yeah, so, so, well, of course, what can go wrong is usually the flip side of a bubble, uh, and bubbles burst. Uh, but you're, you're basically implying that by saying a bubble. And there are definitely some frothy housing markets we've seen um, with the start of the pandemic and the flight to the suburbs from some of the urban areas, notably not really Atlanta. But, you know, you see there, I think it's Boise, Idaho, and um, Nevada. Las Vegas is a classic. And it's it's like all over again from, from the 2000, early 2000s housing bubble. Um, and what you're going to see is that those prices are going to start coming down. And we're already seeing that. We're seeing price revisions. We're seeing a, a dramatic drop in um, applications for mortgages. And so that the, that's kind of the handwriting is on the wall of a decline in, in home prices in those bubbly, frothy areas where people decided to go do remote work in beautiful locations uh, far from the cities uh, in 2020. Right. Uh, and, and now we're revisiting that. But the, but the impact um, I wanna... of that, the, uh, just real quickly, the impact of that is very, very different, uh, I think Professor Pauline would agree, than what happened in the bubble after 2005, 6, 7, and 8 where you had an incredible excess of construction. You had too much, much too much supply, and you had uh, mortgages being given to people who couldn't afford to pay the mortgages. And the result of that was tremendous unemployment and foreclosures and people losing their homes and, and losing their credit for years and years and years. This is a very different situation. Absolutely. I totally right. agree with that. Yep. I want to I want to go go kind of sum up a part a part of this conversation with something I think I heard Michael both you and Caroline say. So we have we're in an inflationary period. Uh, the cost of goods and services has gone up substantially. Um, you both suggested that it may de decelerate at some point. It's starting to come back down again. But what people see in their everyday lives is what they're paying for groceries and gasoline. And at the same time, they're hearing these uh, concerns that some people have about the Fed raising interest rates again to fight the potential for a recession in the future. So when they hear that, they think, well, if, if, if maybe that's going to mean inflation comes down and I'm not going to pay as much at the grocery store. But, Michael, what I heard you say earlier is those are not related really at all. The prices of goods and services have very little to do with what the Fed does with interest rates. That's a whole different matter entirely, yes or no? Do I have that wrong? Well, you're going to make me talk about the tear gas and the squirrels in the attic again. But, yeah, they're, they're, <laughs> they, they, but, but ultimately, ultimately if, you, if you can cut demand enough, you will you will chill inflation even if even if you're not getting at what's going on with supply. The problem is, you know, do you really want people to eat less or to buy less food? Uh, and, and and you can't have people uh, live in few. You, well, except in some cases, you you can't have people live in fewer homes. They want a home. Uh, they need and, and so that's that's kind of a built-in demand for both food and for housing. That isn't going to change a lot. 
um, with with the Fed interest rates. So yes, there is a there is a mismatch between the tool that they are using and the impact they would like to produce. And one last question, because uh, I do want to re- let you guys go in a moment. Um, we're worried about a recession, Caroline. Uh, first of all, what factors will uh, have to uh, come about? Uh, for us to go into an actual recession. I know there are some people out there, especially on the right, who say, we're in a recession now, we're just not talking about it, but we're probably not. Um, What factors will contribute to our having a recession, and what is it going to mean to the families who listen to this show? Well, so a recession means that growth is going to actually um, not just decelerate, but we're actually going to have a decline in output. And that usually has some definition, you know, an official definition over the course of a couple of quarters. But it's usually it's combined with some other factors like unemployment going up. And basically what what the Fed is doing by um, increasing interest rates is going to eventually increase unemployment. And that means, you know, some people will lose jobs, but everybody will experience a slowdown in inflation. So that's the trade-off that the the Fed is betting on. Now, Congress could do some things too. You know, like we talked about with dumping helicopter money, they could, you know, do things that uh, slow down that kind of uh, inflationary pressure from the standpoint of spending. So they could contract uh, the budget. They could cut spending. They could increase taxes. So there, you know, people forget that Congress actually has fiscal authority and actually has more direct control over things like the economy. Um, but what you might see is that, um, you know, growth will slow. It's expected to slow and and maybe dip down into negative territory next year. But uh, unemployment will increase, uh, and yet the uh, the Estimates that I've seen in places like, you know, Morningstar and the conference board suggest that maybe it'll get into the mid-force, 4.5%, which is still on a historical scale, um, very low in um, unemployment. So, um, Michael, final question before we uh, take our final break of the show. Um, I, I know you don't want to talk about partisan politics, but I'll ask you a broader question. <laughs> what I'm hearing you both say, as experts on the economy, is that in many, many ways, it doesn't much matter whether Republicans control Congress next year or Democrats control Congress next year. The economy operates independent of what elected leaders do, with the exception of what Caroline just said. There are measures that Congress can, can, can take. Have I got that wrong? Uh, that's essentially right. The Federal Reserve, our central bank, um, uh, is is uh, responsible for slowing the economy right now, and it's got a dual mandate. It's supposed to it's supposed to support both uh, full employment and price stability. And unfortunately, those two mandates conflict with each other. And historically, I think it's fair to say that historically, the the Fed has always erred on the side of protecting prices and protecting uh, lenders and. Uh, and making it more difficult for working people in the short run. So, so, so in, Caroline, in essence, you're right, but it's, the Fed has a lot of power, and, and they haven't stopped raising interest rates yet, so it's, it's up to them. Yeah, so Caroline, I'd love to hear you it, on that. Yeah, the, the, the Fed is largely um, it, you know, independent um, of politics, but Congress is not. And so when we see our, uh, the economy start to dip into recession, that's where Congress comes in. Um, and what happened in 2020 and 2021, uh, both under Republican and then Democratic administrations, um, you saw a big increase in spending by Congress, the, 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 the um, fiscal stimulus. And now you're seeing things like um, the student loan program that, that President Biden announced. And, and so these are stimulating kinds of um, policies. And so the, the control of Congress does matter because if we do dip into a recession and it's significant, then typically Congress would be doing some kind of fiscal stimulus. And if the Republicans take control of Congress, then you will see them try to prevent any kind of fiscal stimulus. If Democrats retain control, of Congress, then you'll see fiscal stimulus. So there is actually a um, 
potential significant difference in um, the political control and what kind of outcomes we see. And think back to 2017 with the tax cuts, the corporate, the big yeah. uh, corporate tax cuts um, and tax cuts on the wealthy in 2017. That was also inflationary. Uh, if you if you want to go back to the um, the politics of the Trump administration as well. So what I'm hearing here is uh, things like gas prices, a president and Congress don't have a whole lot of control over. Maybe some of the goods we're buying, but in larger ways, absolutely, it can make a difference which philosophy controls Congress. Um, All right, we're out of time uh, to talk with uh, you both, Michael Cannell and Caroline Foline. Uh, Thank you so much uh, for uh, being with us. It was a real pleasure to have you here. Um, you know, sometime when we're out of an election cycle, we should have you back. Let's just talk about the economy moving forward post-election. Um, we're going to take a break right now. We'll be back with Stephen Fowler and Jim Galloway in just a moment. Uh, we know that uh, early voting has already brought uh, well over a million Georgians out to the polls, but there are still many, many more who haven't voted yet. Stephen Fowler, I promised that uh, we would talk about these uh, four statewide ballot initiatives. There is not a constitutional amendment on the ballot, but let's quickly uh, go over them because we have a lot of people, uh, uh, listeners saying, please tell us about them. So, Stephen, let me start with you. The first one, uh, the, for, the formal language is it provides for suspension of compensation of, well, no, that's not the text. It's the heading. It provides for suspension of compensation of certain state officers and members of the General Assembly. What exactly does that measure do? Well, so this closes a loophole that allows elected officials in certain statewide offices to get their state salary after they've been suspended from office for a felony. And you're like, that sounds oddly specific. Well, it's because it did happen. It was oddly specific. Uh, Former insurance commissioner, Jim Beck, um, he was suspended in 2019, but still collected a state paycheck for about two years until he was found guilty of things like theft, fraud, and money laundering. So uh, if voters vote yes, then that means that that situation would not be happening again. Um, there has been some criticism of it saying that, uh, uh, you know, there's innocent until proven guilty and, you know, people shouldn't rush the judgment, but these are, you know, multi hundred thousand dollar taxpayer funded jobs. And so that's where the push from this came from. And Jim, the provision also says that if a person is found innocent of whatever they're charged or not guilty, uh, they will get back pay. So it isn't irrevocable. Right, right. It's it's uh, it's it's interesting. You have to wonder whether, uh, in cases like uh, uh, like Jim Beck, whether this might have speeded up the the litigation process. Uh, because it gives it it it, it takes away the the, the financial uh, incentive for stalling, uh, and and just kind of uh, treading water in in, in the courts. Uh, so it it's it, I think this is going to appeal to appeal well to to most voters. All right, Galloway. Question number two, ballot question number two, is a perfect one to ask you, the father of a, a daughter who works for FEMA about this one provides for temporary local tax relief after disasters. Well, no, this is a constitutional amendment. I apologize. These are actually constitutional amendments. I did not realize that. Um, So should the Constitution be amended to provide that the governing authority of each county, municipality, or consolidated government and boards of education uh, shall be authorized to grant temporary tax relief to properties which are severely damaged or destroyed as a result of a disaster and located within a nationally declared disaster area. We think of the damage Hurricane Michael did to farms in rural Georgia when we think about this amendment, and I apologize for not calling him that. Well, um, most specifically, this is this is a kind of a, a, an aftershock, if you will, of the tornado that came came through Noonan in, yes. down in Coweta County, where you had where you had where you had houses wiped wiped off their lots, and yet the the homeowners still responsible for paying a property tax that was keyed to 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 
what they paid for the house when for the structure when when the house was actually there. So it, it's uh, it's it, I think we're going to see more of this as as we kind of adapt ourselves to the to the more severe weather that that climate change poses. Um, so people will have to decide for themselves when they go into to vote if this is something they believe is important. But certainly we can understand why victims of disasters uh, like the Noonan tornado, like Hurricane Michael, would hope that there will be some uh, temporary relief at least. Stephen, uh, ballot uh, uh, question number three. Uh, provides for ad valorem tax exemptions for certain timber production, reforestation, and harvesting equipment. I have to admit, that's the one I'm not, I, I have the hardest time kind of understanding. Yeah, so basically under the current law, family-owned farms are exempt from ad valorem tax on a lot of the equipment. Uh, but timber production is one of Georgia's uh, valuable industries. And so the Georgia Forestry Association, uh, Georgia Forestry Association, told our colleague Orlando Montoya that they want timber producers to have some of these same tax exemptions that the farmers in the state have. Um, Georgia apparently plants between 200 and 300 million trees a year, and that's a lot of trees and that's a lot of equipment. So they're arguing that this is a tax exemption that would benefit Georgia's forestry industry. Yeah, it, this is this is this one gets uh, this one uh, starts to trouble me here uh, because what you have, especially especially in rural Georgia, you have huge swaths of uh, land under under uh, the ownership ownership of a, a, a timber company, and and the, the there, there's no fiscal note attached to this. There, there's no there's no there's no information about how much this is going to cost a particular county. Because that's that's who who those, local government is what's what's vulnerable here, because if you have fewer landowners, then then you are more reliant on the property taxes generated by those landowners, and and you've had you've had you've had uh, school systems uh, just almost on the brink of collapse in some counties, uh, where where you have an excess uh, uh, excess of, of property tax uh, uh, mitigation there. All right, Jim, uh, ballot question number four expands, and this is basically partly what Stephen uh, also talked about, expands ad valorem tax exemption for so-called family-owned farms and adds qualified products to the exemption. It redefines what a family farm is for property tax purposes. Um, currently, the law exempts family farm equipment structures and livestock uh, from ad valorem taxes, the proposal would clarify that two or more farms that currently qualify for the exemption would still qualify as a joint venture, and it also adds dairy products and unfertilized eggs uh, and poultry as products qualifying for the exemption. Jim, if you can wade through that tangle of rhetoric, please do so. Well, this is uh, you, 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 you kind of go back to that era when when Sonny Perdue was Secretary of Agriculture in the in the in the in the uh, uh, Trump administration. He uh, he he was uh, his his advice to farmers, I think, was somewhere in the Midwest was uh, go big or go home. And you have you have you have uh, far, farm farmers that are being forced to expand. And and again, we get to, we get back to this. The, we get back to the 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 huge property uh, uh, own, huge property ownership in in specific small counties in Georgia, and the impact it has on the account on on the the the, the finances of local government. All right. Um, so people will read that amendment. And Stephen, do you have any insight to add to that, or should we move on? <laughs> <laughs> Stephen Fowler says, nope. <laughs> you asked for it, listeners. Uh, we did our best laying these out uh, for you. They're complicated, those last two particularly. So uh, I, I wish you well in making your decisions about how you cast your ballots in those. Stephen, we don't have a whole lot of time left, but, but former President Obama is coming into uh, Atlanta today to boost the campaigns of both Raphael Warnock and Stacey Abrams, how significant do you think a visit by the former president uh, is for those candidates uh, right now? 
Well, really, Barack Obama is the best and really the only major campaigner that Democrats can rely on right now with very little downside. You know, he's far enough removed from being president that a lot of people have more warm, fuzzy feelings about his time in office. And he's also close enough to having served as a historic president that he still, you know, carries a lot of weight. It's not like some random senator or governor or somebody that people are like, oh, who? I mean, he's come now. He came in 2018. He came in 2020 and has been a very mm-hmm. effective mobilizer. And I mean, today is a strategic day. It's the last day that people can request an absentee ballot, which will up that deadline will basically already have almost passed by the time Obama speaks. But tomorrow is the last mandatory Saturday of in-person early voting. It's a huge day for early voting. It's a huge weekend for Democrats that do souls to the polls and other get out the vote efforts. And so heading into the final week of in-person early voting, which is the busiest time, you have Obama coming, sharing the stage with Stacey Abrams, Raphael Warnock, and the Democratic ticket, talking about the importance of the vote, presumably about the importance of Georgia and its role in today's political climate. And you really have this positive, energizing message that will be dominating both, you know, Democratic feeds, but also, you know, news outlets. I mean, I've heard there's going to be close to 100 different reporters there tonight covering this event. And by the way, Jim, uh, if his messaging in Georgia is similar to what he said in he said in in uh, uh, talking about Pennsylvania, he's also going to warn about the threat to democracy if Republicans uh, should uh, win all of the elections, uh, control of Congress. Right. I, I know we're short of short on time, but I, I I would also like to mention the dog that's not barking. Uh, Donald Trump uh, has picked out mm. a number of states that he's going to visit in the final days, and Georgia is not one of them. I think that's good for Brian Kemp, the governor, and uh, and and not so good for Herschel Walker. Um. So uh, neither President Biden nor Donald Trump. Uh, appearing in Georgia in the final days of the election. Although we don't, Stephen, do you have some news that maybe Biden will come in? No, I was going to say, you know, speaking of, you know, who you come in to bring to close, Governor Brian Kemp just announced his final week of travel, and he has a trio of uh, Republican allies that supported him in the primary that are coming: uh, Doug Ducey, Chris Christie. And I'm blanking on the third one right now because I get a lot of emails in the inbox. But, you know, Brian Kemp <laughs> is campaigning. You know, Brian Kemp is campaigning with that message. We are completely out of time. Thank you, uh, Stephen, for pointing out uh, the Kemp people who will be in today as well or over the weekend as well. Uh, thank you, Stephen Fowler, for being with us. Jim Galloway, you too. Thank you for all of uh, you out there listening to today's show. I really enjoyed getting a chance to talk about the economy Uh, and how it may play out in the election. We'll be back again, of course, on Monday with a brand new Political Rewind. Until then, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, go out and get a flu shot and maybe a COVID booster while you're there. Bye-bye, everybody.